Morning Church. You guys will open your Bibles with me to Luke 24, 1 through 12. Once you guys find that, if y'all will stand with me as a congregation. On the blue Bibles, it should be 884, if you guys are using that. All right, Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You guys may be seated. I would like to begin this morning by engaging your memory of ninth grade biology. Now, a few of you haven't been to ninth grade, but for a lot of us, uh, that's going to be quite a task to try to reach back into your ninth grade biology uh, capsule in your brain. But hopefully... You'll remember this part about the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly. You remember that? You know at least a little bit about it, but let me refresh your memory in case you've forgotten. Immediately upon hatching from this egg, this tiny little caterpillar begins consuming its environment. Uh, it consumes so much that it's said that he eats as much as 100 times its body weight in a single day. I think you think you're full at Thanksgiving. <laughs> 100 times its body weight in a single day. And it grows so fast over the first three weeks of its life, it literally splits its skin open five different times. Finally, it's so bloated by its consumption of the world, it really can't move anymore. And so it just maneuvers itself, as you know, to, to the underneath side of a branch or maybe a leaf. And then it starts spinning a cocoon. You remember what that's called? S-A-T prep here. A chrysalis. Remember that? So it begins spinning this little cocoon, and it lives in that place. And what happens next really is extraordinary. That's a good word for it. While in the chrysalis, a previously dormant cell within the caterpillar activates. I don't know if you know this part. So, so it, there's a dormant cell inside this caterpillar. He has no idea that he has it. But then once he gets in this chrysalis, this dormant cell activates. And it's called the imaginal cell. Isn't that interesting? Like it couldn't possibly imagine what it's going to transform into. But as soon as the imaginal cell awakens, the immune system of the caterpillar doesn't recognize that as a cell that should be here. So it begins to attack the imaginal cell. 
trying to say, well, we don't want to be like that, so we got to attack these foreign cells. But fortunately, these imaginal cells are pretty tough. They multiply quickly, and then they overtake the old DNA of the caterpillar. And the caterpillar then turns into a butterfly. You might say that the genetic future of the caterpillar is based on the imaginal cell. The activation of these few cells create for this bloated caterpillar a life it couldn't have previously imagined. There's no way it could have imagined what it could possibly come until something gets activated in it and it becomes big enough to say, hey, you can be something totally different. And this morning, what I'm going to try to do is to activate the imaginal cells in your soul that maybe for some of us have become dormant. But I want to give you a warning. If these cells begin to activate in your soul, a transformation is underway. And I want you to know your old cells, your old way of life, they're going to fight hard against these new cells. As soon as they activate, you're going, oh, we don't want to be like that. Oh, we don't want to be transformed in that way. There's going to be all kinds of pressure to say, let's reject that way. And I'm hoping this stirs up some dormant cells that I believe God has divinely implanted in each person in this room to be transformed into somebody that you couldn't possibly have imagined. Karina's testimony was so beautiful. Uh, immigrant from Romania, her life in Hickory, North Carolina. Little cells got stirred up there. Took some time. It doesn't, this transformation doesn't happen all at once. But when they become activated, when, when God comes in a different way, you can become somebody that you couldn't possibly have imagined. And I want to stir up those imaginal cells by just giving you a little picture of how this, ha- this transformation happens in the lives of four different people that were with Jesus either at his death or his resurrection. And maybe one of these people is more like you. And hopefully their history, their little testimony will stir up the cells inside your soul. First, look back with me to Luke 23, 39, the thief on the cross. Jesus dies on what we call Good Friday. And on Good Friday, there's a, there's a criminal to his right and a criminal to his left. And they have this brief conversation that I'll read for you. It's in 23, and it starts in 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Hey, save us. But the other criminal rebuked this criminal, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. See, we're here hanging because we've done something wrong. We're receiving the due reward for our deeds, he says. But this man... Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. Because you don't have much breath on the cross, because you die of suffocation, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, struggling with the same breath, truly I say, today, You'll be with me in paradise. 
three things happen in the DNA of this man hanging on a cross. First, he saw himself correctly. When the imaginal cells of your soul, the God-identifying creation begins to stir, you see yourself correctly. And when you see yourself correctly, you realize, I deserve condemnation. Now, I, I want you to know, when this first enters your mind, you're going to have every cell fight against it. Well, I mean, I mean, I know I'm bad, but you should see this guy right here. There's all kinds of ways you're going to compare or blame shift. There's all kinds of mechanisms that just immediately go into overdrive to say, it's not, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad, or I've done a lot more good things than bad things. There are all kinds of justifications. But finally, this man just says, hey, I deserve to die. And that's the beginning of something stirring. The second thing is this man sees Jesus correctly. He's done nothing wrong. He's totally different from the two criminals. He's not like me. He's, he's something different. Now, he doesn't see everything you could possibly see about Jesus, but he at least sees something that he's different. He's different than me. He's different than my buddy on the other side. And third, and this is really the remarkable thing that you can tell something stirring in his soul that he couldn't have really thought about before, he saw hope for himself in Jesus. He's looking at Jesus, and he sees something that gives him hope. Think, think with me. It would have been logical for the second criminal to say, I deserve to be punished, so Jesus punish me. I mean, he's recognizing that. He's seeing Jesus as somebody different, so he deserves punishment. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, hey, I deserve to be punished, but reward me. Remember me when you get into the kingdom. The man sees something different about Jesus, and he hopes Jesus, this is the key part, he hopes Jesus can remember him in a different way than being a criminal. You hear that? He's hoping that he knows I'm a criminal, he knows Jesus is different, and he's hoping that somehow Jesus can see him as different than just a criminal. Jesus, is there any way you could look at me like I was innocent? And the answer to that is what? Actually, it is possible. It's just what the, the, the team just sung about. A divine exchange can happen when you put your trust in Jesus. He takes all of his innocence, he takes all of his perfection, and he places it on you. And you, he takes all of your sin, all of your criminal activity, and he places it on himself. And he pays for it. And so God can look at you and look at me and say, hey, Paul, welcome to paradise. You're innocent. To me, that's good news. That's good news. Because I have gotten the stir in my soul to know that really I deserve condemnation. So I wonder if there's anybody here that's like a criminal. You finally just come to see, okay, I really do deserve condemnation. I see Jesus 
he's somebody different than me. I mean, this guy doesn't see a lot. He doesn't see everything, but he just sees something. And what that something is, is I think this guy can give me hope. He can give me something I can't get for myself. Karina said it so beautifully. I, I, I needed something outside of myself. The song that we're going to sing at the end, And Can It Be, that I should gain an interest. Remember what that is? A stake. I'm a stakeholder. And what am, I, what am I a stakeholder in? An interest in what? The Savior's blood. I have a big interest in the Savior's blood. Why? Died He for me. Died He for me. That's the gospel. And it's available to the worst kind of person on the planet. Now, so a lot of us here think, I'm not really the worst kind of person on the planet. And I'm not going to argue with you this morning. I think you might be. But for just the sake of Easter morning, let's say you're not. But some of you know yourself well enough to go, what goes on inside my mind, what I've done, what I won't speak to anybody else deserves judgment. And I want you to have hope this morning that the first man in paradise we sang about it in the first song. He opened paradise. Who's the first person who gets the, the, the golden ticket? The thief of all people. There's a pastor named Alistair, uh, uh, Alistair Begg, and he has a wonderful part of a, time, of a sermon about these thieves hanging next to Jesus, and I want to just repeat what he says. Consider the thief on the cross, Alistair Begg says. Never been in a Bible study. Never got baptized. Never, he knew nothing about church membership, yet he made it. Uh, um, imagine this criminal coming to the gates of the paradise and an angel saying, uh, uh, what are you doing here, sir? And the man says, well, well I don't know. Uh, you, can just, you know, you just can't walk in on your own. Well, I, I'm not sure how I got here. And the angel says, well, for this, I'm going to have to get my supervisor. So the supervisor comes over and says, okay, just a few questions. Are, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith alone? No, I mean, I've never heard of that. Are you good at bi your Bible reading plan? Never read a Bible. Then, then, sir, why are you here? And the man says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's, that's the only reason any of us ever get in. It's nothing we do is the man on the middle cross who's, if all you know is he's different than me and he can give me hope, that's enough. That's enough that the man, you know, the man on the middle cross said you could come. So if you're a criminal and you know it, you're welcome. You're welcome to paradise. May that stir up these dormant cells in your soul. Secondly, look at with me at the centurion, verse, chapter 23, verse 46. Jesus dies, and he says this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathes his last, and then the very next thing, now when the centurion, this is the Roman soldier, saw what had taken place, who's standing at the foot of the cross, he praises God, saying, this man was innocent. Same thing as the, the thief. 
The Roman centurion, most of you probably know, he's a regular foot soldier. He's an enlisted man. He graduated from high school and didn't get a college degree and just decided, I want to be a soldier. So he goes in as an enlisted man, and he becomes a great soldier. And a great soldier means I'm totally sold out to Caesar, and I'm great at killing people. That's what qualifies you being a great soldier. This guy had gotten enough reputation and leadership capacity that now he's over at least 100 other men. That's why he's called a centurion. So he's great at being sold out to Caesar, and he's great at putting other people to death. And he stands there at the foot of the cross, and he just begins to see something. Again, it's not a lot. It's like just the first few cells. And what he begins to say, see is there was, something about, there was something different about this man than any other man I've seen. I've seen a lot of men die, but this man was different. And what stirred in his soul was he's innocent. And he began to praise God. And I want you to hear that's, that's a big step in a little phrase. It says it in the book of Mark this way. Truly, this is what the centurion says, this man was the son of God. Wow. Now, the reason this is so amazing is because this centurion soldier is sold out to Caesar. And no doubt in his pocket, he could have pulled out a coin that on the coin had a picture of Caesar. And underneath the picture of Caesar, you know what it said? Caesar, son of God. So when this man says, this is the Son of God, he's saying something really big. And what he's saying is, I'm beginning to change my allegiance. I was sold out to the world. I consumed the world like the caterpillar. And it just wasn't enough. But there's something different about this man. And instead of trusting in Caesar, I'm going to begin praising God. It's, it's the beginning of a transformation. I mean, you want to, what I would want to tell Luke, the writer, is, can you follow this guy along? Like, this is the last time you see him. And when, when, when you know, like, hey, when he breaks out of his cocoon, what does he really look like? But we just begin to see these dormant cells that have been just sitting there activate now. So, especially men. Any hardened man here? Any man's man? You know, where you're tough, you're, you're kind of crafty, you're, you can navigate the world. You're, you're kind of on top of the leadership food, you know, the food chain. You're, you're, you're a tough guy. You make things happen. You make things go. You get things done. And Christianity feels like <clears throat> it's kind of for women, not for this man. Something stirred in this hardened man's soul like the criminal. And again, he just began to see something. And my hope, if this is you, this would stir. Third person is Joseph, chapter 30, verse, chapter 30, 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision an action about putting Jesus to death. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one else had ever been laid. So Joseph, he's a wealthy man. He's in a powerful position. He's on this Jewish council like the Supreme Court. This is what John 19 says about Joseph. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the other Jewish leaders. Isn't that interesting? A Pharisee following Jesus, but in secret. I want to follow, very intrigued, but my friends aren't. So when I'm around them, I, I can't. I can't give it away. I can't do anything because I might lose my position. And man, I, I can't lose my position. I can't lose my power. So he follows at a distance. He follows sort of secretly. But now something has stirred within Joseph. He knows when he goes out and asks Pilate for the body that that Pilate's going get, to get it back to the high council. Whoa, what do you mean? One of ours asked for the body? Yeah, it was Joseph of Arimathea. See, he's beginning, just like the centurion, he's beginning to shift allegiance. And instead of fearing man, he's beginning to fear the Lord in the most healthy way. And I wonder if there's anybody here that's intrigued by Jesus. You're trying to follow him, but really in secret. Maybe you're a high school student or a college student. Maybe you're in an office complex that, you know, the jokes go around. You just can't, you can't weigh in. You can't say anything. You don't chime in, but you just don't say anything. I think when it says Joseph didn't agree with their decision, when they were making the decision, I doubt Joseph raised his hand and said, hey, I'm not doing that. Pretty sure he just kind of was one of the guys in the back going, mm. anybody like that? Just trying to follow Jesus, but in secret. Something gets stirred up in Joseph. Some kind of courage gets stirred up to say, if he died for me, if he defeats death itself, then I don't have to be afraid of what other people think anymore. And my hope that for anyone here following Jesus in secret, something would stir in your soul. To say, I'm just not going to live by the fear of other people any longer. Finally, the last group of people here that I hope stir up some dormant cells in your soul is this group of women. One of the most interesting facts about all four gospel accounts of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the prominence and the position of women. In all four gospels, this is the climax of the story, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's the whole thing. And at this point in all four Gospels, all the male disciples have dispersed, and the only people left who've seen all of those events, women. Perhaps proof of former Prime Minister of England, Margaret Thatcher's quote, if you want to get something said, ask a man. If you want to get something done, ask a woman. <clears throat> but you see here, 23 verse 49 and all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance. 2355, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and where his body was laid. Verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1, but on the first day of the week, early in the dawn, the women went to the tomb. And then the women have a discussion with these angels. He is not here, 
He is risen. Remember how he told you why he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise? And they remembered his words. One reason this piece of information is so interesting and I would say important is that in this culture, a first century Jewish culture, the testimony of women wasn't to be believed. Whether you were in the Jewish system or the Roman judicial system, women weren't viable witnesses. So if you were writing an account of Jesus in the first century and you wanted people to buy in, even if you knew the women were there, you just sort of edit that out. Right? You would just say, I mean, the, they were there, but we got to edit it out because we really want everybody to believe it. But they didn't edit it out. Why? Because that's what really happened. The very first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. And you know that's the weird part about it because when they come back and tell the disciples, and you know these disciples and women have been traveling together with Jesus three, for three years, they think they're hysterical. Remember that verse 11? It's an idle tale. That's the word for his, hysterical. So they come and say, well, I mean, we heard the same things you think, but we don't believe you, women. Imagine how they had to eat that later it's over and over. Remember, hey, you remember that time when we came back? Yeah, okay, we remember, we remember. Notice what happens in this conversation with the angels. They remembered Jesus' words. Before they had seen Jesus, something got stirred in Jesus, by Jesus' words. Yes, that's right. He said that he was going to die at the hands of sinful men, and then he was going to be resurrected, and that's exactly what happened. I can trust his word. So my question for you, for me, Whose words do you trust for the salvation of your soul? Everyone here has an immortal, eternal soul. I bet most of you know that or feel that. And everyone here is trusting in some word for that soul. It might be your word. Hey, this is what I think is going to happen. You're trusting everything on your word. Or it could be a professor. Could be a book you read. Could be a parent. Could be a bunch of friends. But everybody's trusting in some word. These women, something stirred when God's word got said. And they trusted in his word. Whose, whose word do you trust today? Don't, don't let it be mine. Jesus' word is trustworthy. They are amazed when they see him to say, yes, this happened just like you said. The illustration of a metamorphosis is perfect for this time of year because if you haven't seen it yet, you will see Tiny little caterpillars get hatched somewhere in April and May. And three or four weeks later, you start seeing these little butterflies flying around. You're going to see them. This is gonna, and it's going to be great because you're going to say, I remember that sermon. That's the whole reason I've done this illustration. I, I hope you realize that. 
And you're going to say, and what I want you to ask yourself is, what about me? You see, nature reflects the creator. And the creator is saying, you can be transformed into something you couldn't possibly have asked or even imagined of yourself. So any criminals here? Any hardened soldiers? Any people afraid following Jesus but trying to do it in secret? Any curious, faithful women? May God's word stir your soul to trust in him and follow his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your word today. That we're not, we're not standing here just telling stories or talking about the Easter bunny. We're talking about something that transforms lives like my life, like Karina's life, many lives in here. Today, I pray, Lord Jesus, that this word would have stirred up dormant cells in the souls of people to trust your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.